to my second podcast for Class Status and Power. This is Grace Dowling speaking, host, creator, director, writer of the podcast. I hope that you're having a good day. I hope that you enjoyed listening to the first episode. I hope it wasn't too long and too boring. Um, And I hope this one is fun to listen to as well. We'll see. So today in my discussion of the recent readings and material of the class, um, I thought that it would just be good to kind of structure things around one main theme. And, you know, really the, the main theme of the past three weeks of the class, honestly, I think it would be something along the lines of like, you know, there just everything is unspoken. There are so many societal rules and, and principles that we don't talk about that operate on the day-to-day, whether that's concerning weak ties and relationships with other people, or it's more specifically about income or about race, you know, I feel like the past few weeks have really um, illuminated just a lot of the different ways that uh, systems operate without our expressed understanding, Uh, which I guess is the point of the course, but I think the past few weeks have really delved into that a little bit more deeply. Um, And when I say, you know, what systems are operating kind of without our understanding, I mean, like, there's, you know, the past few weeks more than anything have illustrated for me, like, the the kind of language that elites use, whether that's, like, uh, primarily about wealthy elites or, like, white wealthy elites or, um, you know, well-connected white wealthy elites would be, like, the the most elite of them all. Uh, but it's it's kind of like the past few weeks have demonstrated the kind of language that um, that those kinds of elites use that normal people don't have access to, normal people don't think about, which uh, I think kind of, you know, the fact that there are layers to people's understandings of social issues uh, and that what people construe as issues is also socially constructed, obviously, like that ties back into... Um, Gaventa a lot because that's his whole thing is you know if people have so much more power than you like they will create the issues that you see and shape your opinion so much that you don't even realize that they're doing it so um in that sense I think the past few weeks I've really been able to see a lot more of that in action you know that third principle of power that Gaventa talks about uh, that playing out because there are a lot of things over the past few weeks, a few, the past few weeks that we've talked about that I hadn't even thought about, that I hadn't even think thought of as issues before, hadn't even concerned me one single bit, and you know there's a clear reason for that, and that's because of people in power, those wealthy, well-connected elites, they don't want me to think about that. Clearly, it's working. You know what they're doing, it's working because I didn't think about a lot of this stuff. So. Um, you know, the past few weeks have been really interesting for me in this course because there have there have been a lot of those, like, aha moments. Those are always well appreciated. I think, you know, for, for starters, if we're going more chronologically in terms of what we've covered over the past few weeks, uh, one of the things that I had no idea about really, you know, I mean, I had a preview of this in Intro Sociology when we read um, 
section of uh, the strength of weak ties, but this course, reading that paper, um, really kind of solidified for me, like, how important connections to other people are and how important weak connections are, and that's, like, a key part of that sort of language, that kind of culture of elites that, unless you're in it, you don't really understand. Um, So for me, like, I saw a lot of the strength of weak ties playing out in the privileged poor, like, especially the way that, um, the way that Anthony Abraham Jack talked about the importance of, like, feeling supported at at schools and, and having access to resources and, like, who you know, your social capital as a way to get resources. Um, so, you know, reading The Strength of Weak Ties, I was kind of thinking a lot about those specific examples and, you know, to tie it back to, um, the theme of the past few weeks, like what I what I mentioned before, I think the the way that we talk about connections is just so it's so different when we are thinking like sociologically versus um, you know, versus normally. And I think when we talked about it in this class, like I've really become a lot more aware of just how kind of mechanical connections to other people can be and how um how useful they can be like for your actual advancement in society and that's like one of those things that I just didn't really think about before this class that much uh, because you like to think that all of your relationships are mutually beneficial and they're all advantageous in some way and you know they're they occur naturally and they're not strategic or anything like that but then you take a class like this and you read a paper a paper like that and you're like, oh man, there are, are whole classes of people out there that have been using these tactics, have been making strategic relationship moves to advance socially and, and financially too. Um, so that was a big deal for me, like reading that piece and really thinking more about it. Just, you know, the idea that that weak ties are so important that having like a widespread network of weak ties is really like the way to advance in society like that that had never really crossed my mind before um before really giving this piece like more thought and reading it more carefully um and you know obviously like I I I knew before social capital is important who you know is important but weak ties in particular I had never really thought of those as being especially important until um, we talked about it in class. And it, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because like we've said in class, like a, a strong tie can never be a bridge to new information because a strong tie provides you information that you, you already have. Because if it's a really strong tie, you already have the information that the other person has, uh, whereas weak ties are the only way to access new information because they're they're weak enough that you don't already know what the other person knows and you don't already have the connections that the other person has um and in that sense like it it makes me feel a little bit a little bit more icky about like networking I guess in in my actual life because I know it's a really important skill and and this piece definitely reinforced that that idea within me like that it makes even more sense why it's such an important skill now. But just the fact that it's such a a um a widely used tactic 
to get ahead and to advance. Like, there's just something so disingenuous about that, you know? Like, I want to... I'm an optimistic person, I think. Like, I want to believe that people make relationships and they make connections with other people because they want to and because they're, they are beneficial and, you know, they they provide, like, something other than um, greater financial gains in the future, you know? Like, I want to think that there are actual connections there. And I'm not saying, like, oh, you have to... Um, you can't have both. You can't have, like, financial gains and an actually meaningful relationship with someone. But part of me thinks, you know, if there are people that are thinking this way, that have this understanding and that, you know, uh, like, actualize this understanding and practice this strategic sort of relationship making, that they, if they're going into situations with that in mind, they're not going to be making the kinds of genuine connections that I would hope people would be making. And that just, it seems so created to me and there's like a distaste for that within me like um you know for instance I I am I had a a teacher in high school who was he is a judge in a court in Brooklyn um and I I've been keeping in touch with him because he was a really important like mentor like figure for me and still is because he's just an amazing person um and I was writing a cover letter for an application that I was making to uh, to send to the court, the Center for Court Innovation, which is a really cool organization that promotes restorative justice practices and community-led uh, conflict resol- resolution, stuff like that. And um, he, I was talking to him about it, and I, I mentioned it, uh, and he, like, knows people that work there, and he was like, or he, he's worked with them in the past. Um, and his immediate response when I told him that I was applying for that internship was like, oh, you have to use me as your letter of recommendation writer. Like, I have to be your referral. And I don't know, I was just really taken aback by that because I think um, I think it, I'm just not very comfortable like using relationships like that because I, I have so much respect for him and so much, like, appreciation for the relationship that I'm able to have with him like you know the the mentorship whatever that we have like I don't want that to be tainted almost by the financial gains that he could potentially lead me towards if that makes sense so you know to me I I see that sort of like mechanical strategic use of relationships almost in a very like negative light um which I think you know, when I was reading The Privileged Poor, like, and students described uh, feeling similarly or just feeling very, like, alienated by the idea of using relationships in that way, like, even though I am not poor, I'm not in any means, um, like, financially unstable like that, I can still definitely relate to that sort of mentality of being just uncomfortable using that. Um, yeah. And... You know, I, I felt like a similar kind of, not, not, it wasn't like an unpleasant discomfort, but it certainly was a discomfort. But, but anyway, I felt a similar sort of discomfort when we were talking about, um, when we were talking, when we were first talking about income and wealth inequality and the difference between the two, because, you know, it just, it's the sort of discomfort that comes from realizing things that you've just been thinking about for so long and, you know, suddenly seeing 
the actual reality of the situation and you know just not being at ease with it because it's like you realize that narratives are constructed and you've bought into them sort of like seeing through the third the third um what is it circle no principle of power i'm not sure whatever gaventa's third principle of power level whatever um you know I, i kind of could see through that for a second with uh with the income and wealth inequality topic and it made me feel like similarly uncomfortable in a way that was comparable to my experience with like thinking about the way that people use connections and stuff um and that was especially when we were talking about how like keeping the conversation the conversation in the media in the um, in the public I guess just generally keeping that conversation focused on the minimum wage, like, how actually really problematic that is. Um, and, I, you know, I didn't even think about that before because even in this class, you know, we, we had that first article about raising the minimum wage for McDonald's workers. And um, so I guess, like, to an extent, you know, we are we're a part of it by talking about that and considering that, like, I don't know, a part of the problem maybe slightly, but the whole thing that we, we talked about in the income and wealth inequality uh, introductory lecture, like about how keeping that, keeping the focus on the minimum wage and everything takes attention off of key things like changing the capital gains tax and other things that are more focused on fixing wealth inequality and like how important that is, whereas income inequality is uh, not necessarily as important um, or rather, it's just, it's, it shouldn't be the entire picture itself. Uh, that was an interesting conversation, especially, um, you know, it was, it was interesting, like, when we talked about how income distribution is, is socially created, like, it's not determined by skills as probably, um, what is it, Davis and Moore would have asserted, you know, instead of, saying, oh, like, your income has to be fixed because your position is this amount of, uh, requires this amount of training and this amount of talent and stuff. Instead of that, like, it makes so much more sense to think about income as socially created. And um, I found the example that you provide in class, the one of uh, the tech jobs and everything, that was particularly useful. I think you said... You talked about how the um, we explained like the Reagan era neoliberal sort of rise in income inequality with the rise of the technology industry, which again like ties back into the idea that income distribution is socially created, but we perpetuate the myth that it's created by differences in skill sets. Um, that just that lecture and talking about how like we how we're told that tech skills are hard to have and they're rare and thus they're more valuable so they should be paid more and um tech education should be more of a focus like that entire that entire kind of conversation really like struck a chord with me because i feel like i've seen so much in the in the past decade in the past few years about just the the incredible importance of technological literacy and you know I, I bought into it to an extent like I, I chose to take computer science in high school instead of taking 
statistics. Although, honestly, like, I don't think statistics are, I mean, I didn't think it was that valuable of a skill. I'm sure computer science is honestly probably more valuable anyway, but regardless, like, that, that myth, that idea that technological education is, like, important because, uh, because it's, it's worth more money and it will always be that way because it just is rare and hard to have, like, that clearly affected me, that affected my choice to take that class, and that continues to affect me now, and I'm sure, I think, if you talk to a lot of computer science majors around campus, I'm sure that they are doing the same thing, um, or doing, they're pursuing computer science for, like, some semblance of that, that hope for financial security, which, like, it makes sense now, given our social context and the way that we place value on technological skills and everything but like we talked about in class like that sort of that income that they're getting it's it's socially created it's not necessarily um it doesn't have to be that high it doesn't have to be considered that rare of a skill and I'm sure as more people have technological literacy and have computer science skills like if we go by the myth that income is determined by by skills and by scarcity then their incomes will go down, you know, if we, if we kind of go down that route. So it really doesn't make sense to encourage more technological education, especially when you consider, like, if you encourage that, then by principle, with this rule in mind, then the income of the people with those skills, if there's more people with that skill, like, the, their income will go down because there will be enough people that want to get those jobs anyway, that you won't have to have such a high pay to incentivize people to accept those positions because there will be enough demand to satisfy the positions no matter what. Um, but yeah, so that that was another really like important, interesting moment for me in this class, talking about that. Um, and on the subject of income inequality versus wealth inequality, one of our earlier conversations, I think about the Saez piece, I forget which one, but, you know, he kind of touched upon similar ideas in, in both of the pieces. Um, but the idea that, like, income inequality is really only a part of the picture and wealth inequality kind of gives you more of the picture overall, like, that that also was really interesting to me. And I was just talking to a friend about this, too, and, um, you know, my friend mentioned to me like oh you know I didn't even think of that before like we always talk about income instead of wealth and uh you know sometimes they're used synonymously when they really shouldn't be um so that's like another uh another kind of moment when we were talking about that first like where I was again like the the third dimension of power dimension that's what it was wasn't level (laughs) the third dimension of power was kind of um broken for me, I guess. So maybe I was sent back to the second. Um, yeah, but anyway, so the idea that, like, income inequality is really not that useful of a measurement, uh, at least for if we're talking about, like, how to fix financial inequality overall, like, economic inequality, uh, that's really struck a chord with me, I think. Um, I think it's it's something that I had never really thought about, but it, it does make a lot of sense. And it reminded me, too, of something we had talked about in one of my other classes, which 
is the social psychology of intergroup violence, oppression, and liberation, or as I call it, SPIVL. Um, so in this class, we, we watched a video with someone who was explaining, like, what the real issue is with like, what the actual result of inequality is versus the result of, like, just income inequality. And I think this person was actually measuring income versus wealth inequality. And what this person kind of did was explain how income inequality is often talked about in terms of, like, on a country-by-country basis. Like, oh, the, the, the average income of workers in the U.S. versus the average income of workers in India or in China or, you know, just other countries. Whereas wealth inequality is a lot harder to compare on a country-by-country basis, generally. So people often, like, zoom in to individual countries and kind of examine a lot of different factors for that because wealth inherently, you know, it encompasses more than just your income. Although, you know, income, as we talked about in this class, you know, it can mean a lot of things. It can include a lot just in itself. Um, but this video we, we talked about kind of explained an interesting idea that I, I, I was thinking about when we were talking about income and wealth inequality. And that idea is that just income inequality on its own doesn't necessarily point out all that much and doesn't seem to have that much of an effect on the lived experiences of, like, the people in that country. Like, you know, having a higher income isn't what causes... Or having a having a different income, like, isn't what causes the inequalities in, like, terms of fertility rates and survival rates generally, like, levels of food insecurity. It's, like, it's not income inequality that necessarily causes that. It's, like, it's, um, it's wealth inequality. You know, like, if you have a, if you have a, a low income, but a lot of wealth, like, you can, you can, you'll be doing fine in, on all of those scales that I just mentioned, like, but if you have a high income, but low amounts of wealth, you know, your wealth is the income that you take home, you know, that's, that's what you have at the end of the day, that's your excess there. So that's assuming, you know, that situation be like, if your cost of living is extremely high, like I live in New York City. So, you know, I, my, my mother's income in comparison to the average income is probably a good amount higher than the average, but because the cost of living where I live is so expensive, you know, like the wealth that we are able to retain is very, very minimal. Um, so in that sort of situation where you have a higher income but lower wealth, you're not, you're still going to experience the, the force of these economic inequalities, like the, or the things that economic inequalities correlate to, like you're still going to experience, um, the like lower fertility, lower survival rates, more food insecurity, stuff like that, because wealth is really what matters when it comes to inequality. Like that's that's what this video is really talking about, um, and that's what I was thinking about when we were having this lesson. Because your income only gets you so far. Like your income is what you live on. Your wealth is you know as as um as Sayas or no that's Sen as Sen says really like. Your income is um, what you use for necessities, what you use on the day-to-day. It's not the same thing as, like, economic inequality overall and, and your the effect of your wealth overall. Um, they have very different kinds of consequences there. So that was another 
another important realization slash um, just interesting finding for me over the past few weeks is kind of being able to reflect on that um, in terms of like my own position financially and also just in the larger conversation we were having in the previous unit about uh, the privileged poor with Anthony Abraham Jack, like when we were talking about um, financial aid in colleges and in Clark and like the way that wealthy students sort of subsidize the uh, the cost of attendance for less wealthy students and like the ways that um, that paying for college is different for wealthy students versus not wealthy students and also students with higher incomes versus students with lower incomes. Um, the fact that it's different right regardless like income and wealth are very different things I think is something that like was really drilled into me in the past in that unit and that's something that I'm going to keep thinking about a lot more. Um, which also kind of ties into our more recent conversations about like credit and debt because I, that's another thing. No one ever no one no one taught me economic literacy. I did not I've not taken an economics course once in my life. It was not taught in high school, it was not taught in middle school. In high school in my school, you know, the supposedly elite institution that it was, we didn't have a single lesson about finances. And where has it left me? I was searching on the Clark U, the the portal for Clark, for like an hour today, trying to find the details of my financial aid package. And you know what? I couldn't find them. (laughs) I couldn't find the details of my own aid package, the package that I have received that like I'm in compliance with right now because they don't want that information to be published. But that's a little bit off topic there, (laughs) a little bit off topic, but... In our conversations recently about credit and about the role of debt, you know, this sort of stuff, I'm really glad that we're talking about this because I had never learned about this before. And I had never thought about things like how debt is used to build wealth. Like, that is just something that is so... You know, when I when I talked about the, the language of the elites before, like, in the very beginning of this episode, which I'm sure by now is like a million years ago... Um, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying, you know, like, this sort of language, just this sort of, I mean, it's not just financial, like, it, it, there are other things, too, like, you know, in the previous things I was talking about, like, with the importance of weak ties, and, um, you know, with, uh, I forget what I was even talking about before, but this, like, there are a lot of things that this language kind of covers, and that you don't really talk about when you're non-elite but I think financial literacy is like the most important thing that is talked about in like elite circles that is never really covered for the rest of us um and I for one really appreciate the conversations we've been having lately because for one thing (laughs) I've learned a lot but I've just I need to figure out how to get a credit card because credit is really important and I've learned that in this class a sociology course it's not even an economics course it shouldn't be this hard to have access to this kind of information. I shouldn't have to take a, a random sociology course to learn about economics and to learn about how important credit is. You know, like, I should have I should have known this. So maybe that's on me, but I really think it's on our education system. But again, a little bit off topic. Um, my point here is that, you know, this, the most recent lessons on debt and on credit 
I mean, with the backdrop, really, of the racial wealth gap, like, those sorts of conversations um, have kind of struck me as the most, like, alien to me, the most, uh, the most, like, elite sorts of discussions, because I, I had never talked about this, and I went to, like, a very, um, competitive kind of high school, and, and you would think that you would learn, like, about the world of elites, and to an extent, like, I did, but not in this sort of financial realm, um, so I think, you know, having these conversations, having these discussions in, like, in other courses, like, incorporating financial literacy into different subjects is important, because, you you know, high schoolers are not getting it from their high schools, um, and I'm, I'm proof of that right there. I don't know a single thing about how to start a credit card, when I should, lending, borrowing, how banks like debt. I didn't know that, but now I do. And now, am I a little bit more stressed about credit than I was before? You could say that, yeah. Am I more motivated, though, to learn about finances and try to get everything figured out? Yeah, for sure. So I think this is overall a positive conversation for me. Um, I'm glad we've been talking about this. That's been a big takeaway. This podcast is already getting really long. I apologize. for. Thank you for making it through all of this. If you listen to all of it, congratulations. Um, and yeah, bye. I'm not going to end it on bye. <laughs> but yeah, I hope you enjoyed listening. I hope that you continue to have a nice rest of your day and I'll catch you in the next episode.